one of the things that you have to remember is, you know, we look at the wrongfully convicted, the David Milgards, the Donald Marshalls, and I think we rightly see them as heroes. But until the day their wrongful convictions are overturned, and even sometimes after that, they're viewed as bad people, people who, who, who killed others or committed some other serious crime. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me in conversation, we have from the University of Toronto and the author of Wrongfully Convicted, among other titles, Kent Roach. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you, David? Doing well. Kent, from the outset, what intrigues you about the practice of law? How did you end up in this field? Well, I mean, I I studied history and politics and was always captivated by injustice. And I think I was either going to go on to try to get my PhD in history or politics or go to law school. And I kind of decided that uh, if there were issues of injustice, maybe I could do a little bit more about them as a lawyer. So that's why I went to law school. And then after that, uh, became a law professor. And why do you think injustice really rubs you the wrong way? Well, you know, uh, someone wiser than me once told me that, you know, it's kind of hard to have uh, a full sense of justice, but you should have a sense of injustice. So you should, you know, kind of know it when you, you saw it. So actually, when I decided to go to law school, it was just around the time the Charter, Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was being enacted. And I I, I went to sit in on a law lecture. And after a song called Ohio, which was about the shooting of four unarmed students at Kent State, uh, played on the radio. Radio. And so, at least for me, that's kind of the origin stories of why I went into law. This book that you just wrote, I've got to imagine that it's come out of a lot of your life study and, and this conviction you have that injustice be recognized and, and corrected. What sort of began the shaping of this? Yeah, well, I mean, I started, I mean, I was always attracted to criminal law because the stakes are so high. Uh, you know, thankfully, we don't execute people anymore, but putting a person in prison is about as extreme as we get. So I, I've taught criminal law since I started teaching in 1989, and I always taught the Donald Marshall Jr. case to my first-year law students because I think it's important in law school that they get a sense that the system makes mistakes and sometimes the facts as we tell the students to recite to us from a case are actually not the facts because some of the mistakes that we make are in factual findings and and, and those are often the mistakes that lead to wrongful convictions. So I've been teaching about wrongful convictions since about 19. 89. But this book really comes out of uh, a collaboration with a former student of mine, Amanda Carling. And Amanda uh, took my my seminar on wrongful 
convictions and kind of complained that it wasn't practical enough. And then she put her money where her mouth was after graduating from the U of, U of T Faculty of Law. And she worked for four years with Innocence Canada, which is our leading innocence project. Uh, she came back to the University of Toronto as the Indigenous Initiative man, uh, Manager, and we taught the wrongful conviction course together. And during that, we came up with the idea uh, of compiling a Canadian registry of wrongful convictions. And so we went uh, to Memphis for a conference where we talked to the American, the, the academics and reporters that run the American registry, and they were very kind and gave us some thoughts. And so in 2018, we thought, you know, sure, with a little help from our students, we'll get this registry up and running in, uh, you know, the next year. But we were wrong, and we eventually got it up and running in 2023, after Amanda had left the faculty and with some help from some students. So the book is really kind of the greatest hits from the Registry of Wrongful Convictions. And if people want to consult the registry, it's www.wrongfulconvictions with an S.ca. And in part because Amanda is Metis, we provide a timeline of injustice, which is not just about wrongful convictions. And we also try, just from public records and legal records, to tell us full a story as we can of, I think we launched with 82 wrongful convictions, and now I think we're up to about 86 or 87 since we launched in February 2023. So as we were putting the final touches to the registry, it really made me see these issues it, perhaps in a different light. And uh, I got a chance to write a book about it. Amanda had had moved on to other things and was very busy. That's where this book comes from. What do you mean in a different light? Well, the way that wrongful convictions has, has traditionally been understood is to look at the immediate causes of wrongful conviction. Okay. And uh, that's the way I taught it for many years. So, you know, for example, mistaken eyewitness identification. We're just not very good at remembering what people look like, especially if, you know, it's during a robbery or during some act of violence. And we're especially not good when the person we're identifying is of a different race than we are. It, it, it's just something that psychologists have studied for a long time. Uh, or, you know, false confessions. We sometimes confess to things that we didn't do, but simply because it looks like the best thing to do in the circumstances. Or experts. I, I worked with the Gouge Inquiry that looked at wrongful convictions that all stemmed from a forensic pathologist who made uh, what his colleagues turned out eventually to see as a lot of mistakes and a lot of people got wrongfully convicted as a result. So I've always looked at it through the immediate causes. But what the book does, and this is why the subtitle is called Guilty Please Imagine Crime and What Canada Must Do to Safeguard 
justice is we start off with what is called false guilty pleas. And there's about 15 of them in our registry. And many of those were cases where women and other caregivers, when faced with what turned out to be the wrong evidence by this expert, uh, simply gave in. They were charged with murder. They were given a deal to plead guilty to manslaughter or infanticide. And they made a decision that the best thing to do, they often had young families themselves, was to plead guilty. So the first part of the book is really about, you know, why people who might be innocent might have a defense plead guilty and then often live to regret it. So that's the first part. The second part of the book is about what I call imagined crimes. So when most people think of wrongful convictions, say we think of the David Milgard case, where mm -hmm, David Milgard was convicted of something that was definitely a murder, uh, uh, a brutal murder, but the police got the wrong person. And then eventually the right person was convicted about you know 28 years later, 23 years of which Mr. Milgard had in jail and suffered a lot. Um, but about a third of the wrongful convictions in both our registry and the American registry are of crimes that never happened. So these are crimes that, you know, like a baby death that an expert says is because the caregiver assaulted the baby. But sometimes, unfortunately, babies die for reasons that we just don't know or uh, for natural causes that are misunderstood as trauma. And so by looking, so the second part of the book is about imagined crimes. And it really asks, why are we so suspicious of people? Because, you know, I certainly teach my students the presumption of innocence, and that's an important legal principle that I believe in. But I think deep in our hearts, we all know that the presumption of innocence may run contrary to human nature and a human tendency to be suspicious. So I really wanted to talk about these crimes that really never happened, yet we wrongfully convict people. The third part of the book is... I think will be more familiar for those people that are, know about wrongful convictions or are interested in true crime. These are the whodunits where a crime was committed, but for whatever reason, the police and prosecutors get the wrong person. And one of the things that I point out is that unlike in movies or TV, it's very hard to kind of in a criminal trial to say, it isn't me, and maybe you should be looking at somebody else. And then the last part of the book is, what can we do to better prevent and more quickly remedy and compensate uh, those who have been wrongfully convicted? So, so for me, that's a new way of looking at wrongful convictions. It's the way I teach my course now, but it's also the way that this book is organized. Mm -hmm. oh, very helpful. Good overview. Let's unpack some of these. So the, the guilty pleas, really fascinating. And I think it's got to be saddening for any of your your readers of this book just to realize that there are people who get in these cases where it feels like the deck is stacked against them, even though they're innocent. And so they uh, they take what what is offered to them on the table. 
in some ways, that's the hardest truth in the book because our criminal justice system would break down if everyone went to trial. We, we just don't have enough judges, enough jurors, enough resources. And so because of that, the justice system offers uh, pretty good deals usually for people that plead guilty. So, you know, defense lawyers, and, you know, this is hard for my students to accept, but they sometimes have to go to their client and say, look, you know, the prosecutor is offering that if you plead guilty now, they'll agree and, you know, maybe you'll go to jail for six months, two years less a day. But if you go to trial and you're convicted, then if you're charged with murder, you're looking at life imprisonment. You may get parole after 10 years, after 25 years, but there's no guarantee. And so a lot of these cases were uh, women and often racialized men who were charged with murder of children in their care, sometimes their own son and daughters. And then when they were given a chance to plead guilty to a lesser offense and sometimes receive only a conditional sentence where uh, in one case, a recent immigrant from India pled guilty when he was offered a deal to serve 90 days on the weekend. And at that time, he had one surviving child and his wife uh, was very sick, I think had a brain tumor. So in that case, I think it's perfectly understandable that he took the path of least resistance, the path that was best for his family, and he pled guilty. And it was only many, many years later that the Ontario Court of Appeal considered the new evidence that the forensic pathology was flawed and uh, reversed the conviction and acquitted him. And he was very... I mean, even though he had long served his time, the stigma of being wrongfully convicted. So he wanted to take the judgment and post it at his temple because he felt that people at the temple where he worshipped uh, were looking at him with suspicion. And of course, this is one of the things is it's very hard, I think, for anyone to fully come back from a wrongful conviction. It's Yes, it is the experience of imprisonment, which can be scary and brutal, and you can die in prison. But it's also kind of the shame and stigma and suspicion that everyone looks at you. Because one of the things that you have to remember is, you know, we look at the wrongfully convicted, the David Milgards, the Donald Marshalls, and I think we rightly see them as heroes. But until the day their wrongful convictions are overturned, and even sometimes after that, they're viewed as bad people, people who, who, who killed others or committed some other serious crime. And then the imagined crimes, which can often get linked to these guilty pleas because there's some horrific incident that has occurred and so there needs to be someone who's responsible for it. That person gets pegged, but then you find out that it never really equated to that at all. 
One of the things I talk about is there's been a recent study where researchers sent out scenarios to actual forensic pathologists. They're, they're, they're the people that decide, do an autopsy, decide what the cause of death is. And in one scenario, they described a child dying while in the care of a female white grandmother. And in the other scenario, they described the child as dying in the care of a black boyfriend of the mother. Um, and of course, in baby death cases, if there's only one person who is the caregiver, then really the issue is, is it you know, a natural or accidental death, undetermined, or was it by, you know, some form of violence. And they found that the pathologists that they sent it out were much more likely to think murder in the scenario with the mother's boyfriend who is black. Now that that has been very controversial in academic circles. And I discussed that some people say, well, this isn't really racism. This is more about boyfriends and and grandmothers. But even if you accept that, I think it does indicate that human judgment is steeped in kind of stereotypes or quick thinking, right? So that stereotypes are, 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 are things that may make sense a lot of times uh, and that we quickly jump to those assumptions. And in the imagined crimes, these are generally cases where we make assumptions and, you know, unfortunately, uh, it turns out not to be correct. But all this information that you guys are getting out there and contributing to Innocence Canada, uh, would you say the hope is that it would, you know, give judges and, and judicial people uh, just other perspectives to consider and they're not looking at future cases as dogmatically, like there is truly a, a precedence here, as, I know that's a big legal word you guys like to use? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think that's right. I mean, so one of the audiences for the book are all those that work within the justice system. But we also have a bill before Parliament, Bill C-40, and it's called the David and Joyce Milgard Law. And this will create a permanent commission, publicly funded commission, where people could apply who have been convicted and basically say, you do the work that the innocence projects do for free uh, when they have time and when there are enough donations to them to do it. And so uh, in the summer of 2021, I was the research director for Justice Harry LaForme, who was the first Indigenous appellate court judge in Canada, and Justice Juanita Westmoreland Triori, who was the first Black law dean and the first uh, Black female judge in Quebec. And they were asked by then Minister of Justice Lametti to do consultations and lay out options for what a miscarriage of justice commission would look like. And so I was greatly honored to work with both of them. And we spent the whole summer on Zoom talking to people who have been wrongfully convicted. They were the first people we talked to. But we also talked to people virtually all around the world, including in New Zealand, which is the latest country to have this kind of commission. They issued a report over 200 pages 
that many have described as the best and most modern blueprint for a miscarriage of justice commission. And so now uh, the uh, government introduced a bill. It's just gone to second reading. I'm not sure if it will be enacted before the next federal election. And it certainly doesn't do everything that Justice LaForm and Westmoreland Traore recommended. But that's something that I think people can take an interest in. And if you're talking to your MP, you know, say, look, these people don't uh, have very many people fighting in their corner. It's basically volunteers that are doing it. And there's a lot less innocence projects in Canada than there are in the United States. Uh, And parts of the royalties from the books are going to Innocence Canada and to the UBC Innocence Projects, which are our two leading innocence projects. But if people are interested, they should tell their member of parliament this is something that they care about. Mm -hmm. Helpful. Kent, I'm interested, just the prevalent theme here is there's human error in in the legal system. It's it's bound to, to slip in. And, you know, my audience has a bit of a faith background. And so there's this underlying rest that God will bring about ultimate justice. What is your sense of, of ultimate justice coming forth in this, in this world? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, respect all forms of spirituality. Uh, And I'm certainly not a biblical scholar. I I think some might say that Jesus was kind of the first wrongful conviction, or at least one wrongful conviction. Um, And, you know, certainly some of the wrongfully convicted that I have met, and some who work with the wrongfully convicted are motivated by their faith. One of the things that has happened in Canada is sometimes the prosecutors in Canada have, to their credit, said, we made a mistake, and we're going to help you correct this wrongful conviction. And that's not easy, right? It's not easy to admit that you have been involved with a wrongful conviction when every day your job is to prosecute people and you believe that they're guilty. And so the humility and honesty piece, I think, is uh, really, really important. And I think humility, I know for some people, there may be faith-based reasons that get you to humility, but I think that humility is really, really important because, you know, when we're talking about you know, forensic experts like fingerprints or pathology or gun marks and all that. I mean, frankly, the people that go to law school, they're smart, but they're they're generally those that aren't smart enough or good enough in science to go to medical school. And so, you know, some of it is simply admitting that you don't really understand mm. something. We used to think that um, the system didn't make mistakes. Indeed, in, you know, in 1990, the Supreme Court of Canada in the Charles Ng case, who was, you know, a, a very scary, uh, serial killer who had escaped from California to Canada said, we're going to send him back to California 
And if you want to execute them after convicting them, that's okay. In 2001, so just 11 years later, our Supreme Court of Canada basically said, we made a mistake 11 years ago. Now that we know more about wrongful convictions, we're not going to send anyone back to any country because uh, without assurances that the death penalty will not be applied. Why? Because if the death penalty is applied, then there can be no remedy, right? So that that's an example of our Supreme Court kind of admitting that they made a mistake. And I think that that's something that is actually admirable. And so I think that, you know, if you approach this with a sense of human fallibility, some might call it, you know, human sin, human weakness, uh, whatever you want to call it, you're going to be uh, more receptive to recognizing when uh, there have been mistakes and hopefully remedying them. Well, that's going to have to do it for our conversation with Kent Roach of the University of Toronto. Fascinating, his take on wrongfully convicted. This is the book that has just come out. Guilty, please. Imagine crimes and what Canada must do to safeguard justice. You can get a copy of that anywhere. And you can find out more information on Kent when you head to the show notes over at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. There is this sense in which... People make mistakes, and that includes right down to the best of any field, including in law. So the objectivity of where justice comes from, that's what I would have liked to get into a bit more with Kent. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's God. So it's not on your shoulders. So I feel like there's a release that happens there. Uh, But here's the other thing. Uh, Kent alluded earlier in the interview to this just being the tip of the iceberg as far as digging in to some of these Uh, commissions and some of these cases there could be a ton of others that were also wrongfully convicted what happens then what happens when guys like him pass well we're all flawed there's going to be mistakes and this again comes back to how we can put our trust in god and we know that god is just which means in the end he writes every wrong he has the final word and i find great comfort in that even when just like you i'm rattled hearing a lot of these things he's talking about with imagined crimes where people are tried unjustly, where people are taking guilty pleas when they were innocent all along. It should rattle us, but it should also rest us assured knowing that God is in control and he's just. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. 